Welcome to That DV Show, where the team at Digital Village dive into the latest tech trends and news that's driving epic change in business. We explore everything from the impact technology is having in core business decisions, right down to the cultures of the organizations, through to the influence it has on individuals, you the listeners. So in episode two today, we've got a couple of great guests that'll be joining us. Everybody's talking crypto, and although it's still in its infancy, early adopters are laughing their way to the digital banks, while detractors wait for the cataclysmic collapse. Dion Dalton Bridges from Loda will be dialing in to give us his thoughts on the rise and fall of crypto and the emergence of NFTs. So from trading crypto through down to trading carbon, the Australian government has been vocal about becoming carbon neutral by 2050. So join Corey Hancock, as the, who is the environmental cowboy who certainly doesn't pull any punches on the topic of climate change. And then lastly, we've got Michael Simpson, who will be joining us to discuss how the digital identity technology can help to reduce the risk of identity theft and data loss following a raft of security breaches that have been happening recently across big tech firms and large enterprises. So join Jason, Luke and Paul as they dive into these topics with these great guests and much, much more. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the second That DV Show, second in our series. My name is Paul Scott. I'm here with Luke Favish and Jason Hardy of Digital Village to explore some of the hot topics of the tech industry today. We've got a packed program uh, with experts, ideas, stories to keep you informed and up to speed with what's happening in Australia as well as around the world. In the next hour or so, we'll be diving into agri agri-tech, carbon trading, cryptocurrencies, uh, identity theft and cybersecurity as well as an update on some of the topics that we tackled in the last program. We also want to hear from you. So give us your questions um, for our expert guests and for the panel, uh, as well as the DV Show panel here, Luke and myself and Jason will try and answer your questions. Simply type your questions and comments into the chat next to the video feed that you're watching now. And if you do get called away or you can't see us through to the end, don't worry we'll load a recording of the program onto our website after this program and it should be available in the next day or so. You can also follow us on all of the major social media channels um, and we look forward to hearing your views on what we're doing. I should mention today we are trying out some new tech, right? So we've dug our hands into our pockets and we've raised all of $10 and we've now got some new technology that we're going to be trying out to allow some of our guests to dial in so if there are some jumps in the feed, please stay with us. There may be some, some hicks along the way, but we hope to be able to, to keep it going. So let's move straight into things. Um, the big conversation everywhere these days is climate change and how we as humans have a responsibility for taking action now to prevent a global catastrophe. In Australia, agriculture is becoming a focal point for achieving emissions targets by 2050, particularly when it comes to carbon capture through something called regenerative agriculture. Our next guest believes we have just 10 to 12 years before the damage we've done to the planet will become irreversible. Technology plays a major role in helping farmers monitor the impact they have with carbon capture and get rewarded for their hard work. I'd like to welcome Corey Hancock, who's going to shed some light on this fascinating topic and help us understand 
what farmers need from the tech sector here in Australia. Good to have you on board. How are things? Fantastic. You look, guys look very uh, uh, presentable back there. Oh, we, we, we've, been specially, we've been specially groomed for the occasion. Corey, uh, you describe yourself as an environmental cowboy and scientist, a regenerative agriculture advocate and activist. Um, you grew up on a cattle station on Carnarvon Gorge, central Queensland, Australia. I watched your website video on regenerative agriculture, mate, and I'm hooked. Uh, tell me, what attracted you to this and how do you see this concept helping us save the planet? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I started off as a, as a um, yeah, I'm growing up in the cattle station and uh, from there I had a very natural love for nature and people and the way that we interacted between each other. And then, um, yeah, I, I started off in the environmental industry as a professional and I went into carbon farming briefly. Um, which I'm going back into now, recently. Um, but that carbon farming concept is where you go out into the cattle stations and you you uh, uh, build forests and soil, um, and the carbon in the soils, basically regeneration, and the farmers will get paid a certain amount for that uh, regeneration. And I met some people there, some station managers that were practicing regenerative agriculture. Um, these are concepts that basically mimic nature, mimic the way that uh, the buffaloes and the elephants and um, uh, all those heavy-footed animals over millions of years have, have uh, uh, rotated um, in that predator-prey sort of model um, and helped build the soil carbon. So I started to get a really genuine interest in it from there and how we have moved away from that mimic of, of nature into a more conventional agricultural model, which is where all the natural devastation comes from. So I thought that it'd be a really good way to improve our current systems by swapping to that regenerative um, uh, model itself, but also working out the financial incentives to allow people to do that. That's a very long-winded way to to address it, but um, it's the basic concept, of basic my basic interest in it, I guess. Right. Look, and, and following on from that, I've read the agriculture accounts for about 15%, I think it is, of the Australian government's greenhouse gas emissions target for 2050. Um, tell us, do you think that's achievable? Um, besides the, the changes in mindsets and practices that you've talked about, what sort of role do you think uh, technology can play in helping farmers achieve that? Yeah, so it's getting increasingly difficult in today's day and age where there's such a high demand on food with growing population and the rest of it. And then we've got the climate projections on top of that with uh, extra droughts and floods and, and all those climate extremes that are coming through. So farmers are, are, are faced with extremely challenging times that we haven't been faced with before um, and the, the the crops and the beef production is all on the decline and it's going to increase and in decline in our current conventional model just to due to these climate extremes and the demand that's been placed on the land it's not being able to produce as much so we need to move away from this conventional model into those more regenerative models to allow the country to recover um, and that recovery period is crucial. So this is where carbon farming comes in. This is where it can become interesting is because the farmers can get paid to regenerate their land 
to reduce the amount of stock that they have so that that allows them the time and the financial incentive to be able to um, recover that land in that drought in periods of hardship. So when I was going through doing carbon farming, you know, it was in that period of six to seven years of drought and the farmers were completely destocked their land. So they weren't getting any income off their land at all. Um, whereas, you know, the carbon projects were coming along and they'd get a certain amount of money off that carbon project per year. So they were getting um, paid regardless of whether they had stock on the land or not. So it was allowing that land to recover rather than keeping on flogging it with more sheep, more cattle, the rest of it. Um, so, and you know, it was it was saving. It was it was literally increasing um, uh, or reducing the risk of mental health in, in there. You know, a lot of farmers out there at that time were talking about suicide, and they were saying that the carbon projects actually saved them. It saved their families in that uh, financial time of hardship. So, I think I saw the uh, the benefits that it has. There are extreme challenges amongst that. Um, one of the challenges that I know you guys wanted to touch on was around that um, carbon abatement calculations um, and how we can calculate those those uh, the carbon amount that is sequestered accurately, right? Um, and we can do using different technology, I think, like uh, I've been discussing with you guys previously um, about you know, different infrared models, maybe the blockchain technology can use, um, can more accurately measure that carbon abatement. So there's a consistent standard, not only nationally, but internationally, and everyone measures the carbon the same. Because at the moment, there seems to be a very inconsistent way that we measure carbon uh, across, the, across the board. Indeed, that, there was, uh, you wanted to mention the, uh, the Microsoft um, situation. No, I was actually just had a quick question for, um, that's great, obviously, that, um, that there's had, the carbon farming has had such a big impact um, on farmers and on properties. Um, but just when we're talking about measuring carbon, we're talking about measuring the actual carbon that's in the soil now. So is that right? Not only, yeah, not only in the soil, but in the, uh, in the vegetation methods. And then the highest growth rate in vegetation is from when it's a, a little tree to a big tree, basically. And you, it, that carbon growth rate is what you can calculate um, using different models, and the farmers will get paid for that carbon sequestration. Sure. And um, the farmers getting paid for that sequestration, is that coming just from government, or are we seeing that from private sector as well? Yeah, so I guess I'll give a broad overview of how that has come about. So in 2015, the Paris Climate Agreement um, came into play where 22 countries signed on to uh, reduce our global emissions and keep global warming within two degrees Celsius. Um, Australia was one of those countries that signed on to it. So to that, um, they allocated uh, Malcolm Turnbull, oh, sorry, uh, yeah, Malcolm Turnbull allocated $2.5 billion to an emissions reduction fund. Now, Scott Morrison topped that up to about $2 billion, um, when he came into, into uh, um, our leadership. Um, and that emissions reduction fund opened up a whole heap of different methodologies. There were renewable energy credits and then carbon methodologies uh, amongst that. So the main carbon methodologies that have been used at the moment is forest regeneration, um, fire savannah burning methodology, and soil carbon's only just come in. It's only um, just come into play right now. So it's still a new concept and uh, people are a little bit wary about it. 
But what the um, the companies like mine that I'm be working for now um, go out and they assess the carbon suitability on the cattle stations, and then it, they'll put all that information together. They'll calculate the amount of carbon. They'll, they'll consult with the farmer and say you can get this certain amount of money for doing this um, and changing your management practices to become more regenerative and then they go to the government right? they're sitting around 14 to 16 dollars a car per carbon tonne um, and, and that carbon project will get locked in for 25 years so the farmer will get paid depending on the amount of carbon that they sequester they'll get paid each year for 25 years okay how do they Corey how do they come up with the price of that we can make it become competitive because it's completely reliant on this emissions reduction fund, right? Which is topped up by the government. So because there's no proper price on carbon at the moment. Um, when Kevin Rudd came in, he put a price on carbon which raised the carbon price up to $30, $35 a carbon tonne, which made these soil carbon projects more economically viable, by the way, because it was industry regulating this. So at the same time, with when that when that carbon price came on, you saw emissions reduce because people don't have to pay to offset their carbon, so they'd find more innovative ways to reduce their emissions, their company emissions, and then the, you saw more carbon projects get off the ground really quickly. So you get an, like a reduction in emissions and an increase in uh, carbon sequestration at the same time. And so the way to do that is to put a price on carbon and value carbon the same way that we do gold or oil. We have to think of it as a commodity so that we can trade it like a commodity because the amount of carbon dioxide that's in the atmosphere right now causing climate change is thought to be a problem. What if we saw it as part of the solution? What if we saw it as a gold mine and we started to reverse mine it, started to draw it back down from the atmosphere, store it in our soils and our forests and our oceans and use those different carbon methodologies that I was talking about to allow us to do that and base our entire economic model on the regeneration of nature and not degenerate. I'd say you'd be able to start to reverse climate change pretty damn quickly when you, you reverse that economic model and you start treating carbon as a gold, a gold commodity. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it becomes primarily about carbon capture. And it is, yeah. So and so I know a lot of, um, you know, energy plants around the world are doing that where they're capturing you know nearly 90 percent of the carbon that they're putting in the atmosphere um, which can then either be stored in the ground and then reused as other um, energy sources in the future um, so that's like a pretty significant chunk of the carbon that's being produced what about um, you know i'm interested to know a little bit more about the agriculture side of things and how um, you mentioned what the kind of concerns were with um, storing carbon in the in the ground or carbon trading in agriculture or in farming. Yes, so there's there's a few challenges. I think the first one is the climate projections in Wales. I think that the temperatures are just going to get so hot that it's going to be very difficult to grow the vegetation that we want. Um, and be able to practice that regenerative agriculture method because really like we need rain so if, if you don't get the rain then nothing's going to regenerate anyway so i think the climate projections are now actually going to be a very very prevalent um, challenge in the, into the future the other challenge is not having a price on carbon um, and it not being competitive enough um, with the current cattle prices the way that they are um, the, the 
there's there's a I think the third challenge would be um, the mindset shift that we need um, to create uh, that sort of that sort of enthusiasm around the carbon industry. Um, people, have, especially in Australia, sort of have, um, and this is sort of developed right back in the early days. We have a very poor environmental mindset, and it's developed right back in the early days from when you know Europeans first settled um, into this country, and there were huge massacres. There was complete domination of the indigenous, uh, and we have applied that same mindset of domination to nature with agriculture by the way, um, with the clearing of trees and just smashing land, I'm proposing that we start to align ourselves more with that regenerative mindset and we have to think differently about the way that we do things. We have to mimic nature. We have to be more in line with nature. And if we are, and you know, that's more of a spiritual mindset as well. It's not just a, um, a sort of a hippie thing. It's more of a looking deep into nature i mean albert einstein said it himself the, the deeper you look more the deeper you look into nature the more that you understand life itself mm. and it's it's really true and, and that's what regenerative agriculture is all about and you talk to the farmers that are actually practicing regenerative agriculture on the ground and they say that the first thing that they say that it's not the paddock that you have to change first it's the paddock between your ears that you have to to change you have to go it's deep into yourself uh, yeah and um and reduce your own egos and biases and, and pride and look deep into yourself and look in deep deep into your own flaws and your own um biases and change that first um to change that methodology along the way so i think that's one of the biggest challenges that we come across in everything by the way in all our environmental challenges is that mindset Amazing. Um, that's a, an incredible perspective and I think it'd be a, a, a wonderful change in, in the way that we approach um, the way that we work with the, the land here in Australia um, and around the world. Um, what do you think is um, the, the, the largest challenge you're getting people to take that first step? Is there, is there fear of an economic hit? Um, yeah, and that, that, that kind of is one of those economic hits, is that there's there's a transition period in going from conventional agriculture to regenerative agriculture. That transition period is generally two to three years um, where you have to have a high um, input of costs to start changing your practices. Um, but they say after that, after that three or four year period, you start to see your soil regenerate. You start to see nature itself just uh, do everything that it was intended to. So then your inputs reduce, right? So then your chemicals, your fertilizers, everything that you're putting on the land reduces. So after that transitional period, it gets better. But to start with, there's a bit of an upfront cost. You have to take a bit of a hit. You have to reduce your cattle numbers and the rest of it and and, uh, and put yourself through some courses. You know, like that's the first thing that you should do is start getting out there and learning about it. There's heaps of regenerative agriculture group online, heaps of um, holistic farming courses that you can go through. So, and do you think, uh, Corey, that the government's got a role to play in helping that? It needs to be a top-down, bottom-up approach. I think, Paul, I think that um, we have to take the incentive ourselves, but um, government also has to help with that incentive. So that, that helping that incentive is the carbon farming concept. Um, once the farmers 
get build that carbon in the soils and the and the forests and everything, then they could get paid for that. And so that that's the incentive. Um, maybe there should be some stimulus packages to help them transition. I think that's probably reasonable. Um, uh, but we need we need to look internally ourselves as individuals and then collectively as a whole. Like, where do we want to go as an industry, agriculture, or or um, our industry as a whole? You know, all renewable energy and and um, our, our entire resource industry and technology. It's like, where do we want to go? Where do we see ourselves in 10 to 20 years? We need to ask ourselves that question. And it, once we ask ourselves that question, we have that bigger mm. picture thinking of, of 10 years, 15 years in advance, and we see all the challenges, we'll start to look at that one to two year period and say, well, what's the first step that we need to put in place? What can we do right now, regardless of government, mm. Because the government's not going to act until we do, you know, they're not going to feel the pressure until we start putting the pressure on. Um, so so what what's that first step? It doesn't need to be a huge step. That's the thing that I, I tell farmers all the time. It doesn't need to be something extravagant. You don't need to go and build a million kangaroo fences to the kangaroos out or whatever. Just what's that first step that will help put this, the methodology in place that you can do? And then take the next step and the next step. Yeah, and then all of a sudden you've taken ten thousand steps. You know, you've built yeah. an, uh, um, built an entire regenerative palace, uh, so to speak, um, and you've only taken little steps. Look forward to the future, but then you've got to look right in front of your feet and just carry your feet through. I think. Corey, thank you very much indeed. Absolutely fascinating discussion. Um, obviously, lots to be done. I would encourage. Um, any of our viewers and listeners to go onto your website and look at the work that you're doing um, and we really want to get involved. I know the guys at Digital Village feel really passionately about this um, and if there are things that we can do particularly to help around the carbon capture measurement side we feel that's an area where technology could be helping the, uh, the industry move forward a lot quicker. But thank you again and uh, see you again soon. Yeah, no, thank, thank you very much, guys. It'd be really uh, great to hear the uh, the blockchain bit, I think, yeah. is that uh, that's a big good lead Stand on well, we're uh, talking about. We've got about. Dion waiting, I think. Yeah, I mean, I guess just kind of segueing somewhat into that, Corey, um, it was interesting, you, you mentioned earlier around how, you know, because the, the challenge that we're actually facing here is is a global problem, it's a climate change problem. Like, we're talking about carbon trading, we're talking about an economy, or a, a marketplace essentially, but it is a global problem and it's something that needs to be shared and, and um, addressed globally. Yeah. And a really interesting way of doing that, you actually mentioned um, the blockchain of being able to do that because it ultimately kind of comes back to, well, how do you put a price on carbon and how do you, how do you measure the value of, of some sustainability projects? So, um, you know, the megawatts of wind produced by a power um, plant in Brazil, or 30 hectares of regenerative agriculture in Australia, or um, some chemical plant that's been shut down completely in China, or something like that. What's the actual? There needs to be a standard. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, ha yeah. and so an interesting. Or an exchange. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And so maybe Dion, I just saw that you're probably about to dial in, but it'd be interesting to hear your perspective on being able to have uh, potentially a kind of appeal, you know, a way for a globally um, network of people to actually provide input on the value of those things. So it's like a global standard of yep. a value of carbon, yep. um, of cost and... Okay. 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 All right. Um, but he will so do anyway, it in a second. So <laughs>
Yeah, keep. Um, we'll have to bring Dion in now. Yes, anyway, we will. Actually, so stay, stay. Thanks, Corey. In Corey, anyway. Really appreciate it, mate. Uh, let me just do a quick introduction for you, um, Dion. Um, cryptocurrencies are becoming a mass market investment asset, um, fueled in part by some very high-profile uh, backers in the financial services sector, such as Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, as well as some very influential business leaders like Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey. Our next guest is uh, right at the sharp end of innovation when it comes to cryptocurrencies. Welcome, Dion Dalton Bridges. Uh, great to have you here. How are you? I'm well, I'm well. well thank I'm you well. so much. You um, so much. I, feel, um, I feel a little bit of a hiding after, after coming up to Corey. Up to Corey. He, he, he looks like a good looking like rooster here, so you can have my ugly head for a little bit. You're looking good, don't worry. You're looking good. So, so Dion, uh, you're a self-confessed cryptocurrency fanboy. You've been investing in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies for years. You've obviously experienced all of the rises and falls in value of uh, cryptocurrencies. Is it ever going to settle down and become a stable asset? Uh, fanboy is funny language, but I'm certainly an advocate. <laughs> but, um, I was, I was going to ask you, Yeah. Do I, do I think the volatility is going to... Settle down. Yeah, well, absolutely. And I think that um, I think that if you there's a really interesting book written by a guy called Nicholas Taleb who wrote the book Black Swan. Um, he wrote a book after that called Anti Fragile, where he talks about um, stresses um, actually becoming so st stresses actually becoming um, you know making products and markets more robust. So. It, as opposed to less robust. So in the instance of Bitcoin, stresses might be considered volatility or regulation or attempts to hack it or, or just collective consciousness at whole. And these stresses actually, you know, make Bitcoin stronger. So, you know, to, to, to speak in a more literal sense, um, essentially what's happening as Bitcoin matures um, is that, the hand, people who own cryptocurrencies, in particular Bitcoin, are swapping from unsophisticated hands to more sophisticated hands. And why that happens is because the earliest adopters of cryptocurrency are usually early crypto adopters, or uh, sorry, early internet people, people who are on Reddit, people who are, you know, have smaller amounts of money, but they're willing to take a bet. But as that product matures, the, the, those people sell because they realize they can now buy their house or they can buy two houses or they, they can buy, they can make sure their girlfriend has a girlfriend. And so um, as that process happens, um, as that, that was a joke, sorry guys. Um, and as that process happens, the people who take it on are the institutions. And then that's what's happening right now. And, and as you alluded to in your intro, people like Paul Tudor Jones and um, Stanley Druckenmiller and you know some of the other biggest names ever in Wall Street history are now publicly long on Bitcoin and longer on Bitcoin than 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 gold. So that's sorry, this is a long answer, but that's what creates that backstop. That's what creates that stability. And um, yeah, we're watching it happen. We're watching it happen right now. So you you you, you've mentioned that it's um, Bitcoin is uh, is the currency. It's the eighth biggest currency on the planet, I think, isn't it? I actually looked that up before. It's actually the third biggest currency in the world after the Goodness. euro and the US dollar. And that was published oh by the Deutsche Bank. So um, it actually makes up, Bitcoin makes up about 40% of the total value of US dollars on the planet. 
So, yeah. That is extraordinary. What? It's incredible. Wow. So, I mean, you, you mentioned as well, I mean, it's been spruiked by people like and Elon Musk and uh, Jack Dorsey when we had the conversation early. And, and I think there's a, a figure out that the compound growth rate is around 30% between now and 2026. The compound growth of Bitcoin, do you mean? Yeah. So I don't know if that's a, a, a real figure or not. But anyway, the, tell us what do you think then are the main applications for, uh, for us with, with Bitcoin? Should we all be investing in it? I mean, I'm not a financial advisor, so that's completely up to you guys. <laughs> what, what you guys do with your Good money. Answer. But, um, Good answer. Uh, but, you know, am I optimistically long? Um, yes. or, or to put it a better way, am I irresponsibly long? Absolutely. So what you guys do with your money is completely up to you. But why? What are some of the reasons why someone would make up an investment thesis that's long Bitcoin um, and cryptocurrencies in general? So... You know, to me, it's it's just such a big idea. It actually blows my mind. Like when people actually say to me, why has this thing got value or whatever? It actually, it's almost like a daunting thing for me to answer because it's just, to my eyes, the biggest idea that ever was created. You're essentially talking about a money that, or, or a store of value that is not controlled by anyone. It is controlled by the people. You know, it is, it is unsilenceable. It's un, you, you can't, you can't shut it down. So you now have, you now have a share of value, a medium, that is that is collectively owned, and then on top of it, it has a finite scarcity, which is math, and, and is not only finite in theory, like gold or oil, but is mathematically finite. We know how much exists. So then you couple that on top of the fact that you know, with this rampant price appreciation, you know, other market factors like people just, you know. It, it's just an incredible it's just an incredible platform really and 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 i'm not sure if it will ever be used truly as um if it will ever be truly used as a currency i think it's i think it's far more like gold and and that's not by accident if you look at a lot of the language around bitcoin like mining and and scarcity they're all qualities that gold has had and why gold has been so value valuable and Bitcoin is a central product that represents all the all the those sort of qualities that gold's had for thousands of years. But then, I mean, that's just the, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Like you look at Ethereum. Ethereum is not a currency. It's not competing to be what Bitcoin is. Ethereum is the base layer of a new internet. It gives you the tools. It gives builders the tools to build applications that have no central interface. So, it, like, think about you know, if you think about Facebook, Google, Fang, all these companies. They control all the their data. That's your data. In a decentralized model, you control your own data. You have the ability to sell that back to the network if you want to. That da data is valuable, and it's yours. So can you, can you explain <laughs> um, to, can, that you've, you've opened up a really big subject there, and I know actually our next guest, Mike, is going to talk about this as well. So can you explain the connection there between my data and yes. Ethereum? Yeah, totally. So... Um, with this centralized application, like anything like, you know, like Skype that we're using right now or Google or anything like that, when you sign the terms and conditions, you give them your data. They now have it. They can do whatever they want. Right. And that becomes the most powerful fuel. It's not that even if you are paying $2 a month or whatever, it's insignificant compared to the data because that is the real market. Mm. That's what they really want. That's why Facebook is free. That's why Twitter is free. They're not good blokes. They're doing it because they want your data 
And once they have your data, they can predict human behavior like 99.9% based on a 2010 study, which then leads to advertising and all these other things. Yada, yada. We all understand. I'm not going to go into that. When you, mm-hmm. when you go onto an application on Ethereum, there is no centralized server. There is, there is no centralized server. The data is spread all over the Ethereum network. So what that means is no one has direct access to your data. What they do have access to is your what your wallet does, um, what your wallet does on Ethereum. So your wallet can be seen because a blockchain is obviously a ledger. You know, if someone was to look up your wallet, they could see where your what you're interacting with and at what size and whatever. But they don't know what you're searching, for instance. They don't know what. You know, they don't know what TV shows you're watching or like what cereal you like, and 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 they shouldn't. That information is is rightfully yours. And and if you want to give that to someone, if someone finds it valuable, which a lot of a lot of corporations do, well then you should have the ability to sell it to them. And that's what that's what blockchains allow you to do. They allow you the optionality to sell something that is rightfully yours, not have it taken away from you and then and then monetized in the background. Right. Okay. Um, any questions, guys? Super interesting. Um, not so much with Ethereum, but certainly we see with Bitcoin moving sort of closer and closer and closer and being and adopted further into like the existing uh, financial organisations, uh, financial systems, things like that. I read just today that um, PayPal are going to be accepting Bitcoin. So that people can turn it into a fiat currency and then pay for goods like that through um, through PayPal in that way. So do you do you, do you see a um, like a kind of coming I don't know collision between traditional finance and uh, blockchain or Bitcoin? I don't think a collision is the right word because. Um, I don't think you can stop Bitcoin or, or Ethereum or, or any blockchain. And when you understand what a, how a you know a decentralized network of nodes work, you'll realize that you can't stop it. You know you can't stop every node that has it. So collision, I don't think is the right word. But do I think that they're going to have to work together? Well, absolutely. It's already happening. Like you know you look at Tesla. Tesla has just bought 1.5 billion dollars worth. PayPal, as you say, is allowing it to be used as a gateway. Um, I think it's only a matter of time before. I mean, Jack Dorsey's actually Jack Dorsey through ScarePay, the SquarePay is actually the biggest money um, benefactor. The, sorry, he's the person contributing most money in the world to Bitcoin development. So to think that Twitter is going to one day accept um, Bitcoin is obviously pretty obvious. And, and then, I mean, Zuckerberg, that's not enough for him. He's building his own cryptocurrency, right? So um, it's, 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 not, um, it's not a matter of do I think it's going to happen. It's already happening. Um, and, uh, yeah, but the thing is, and this is, a, this is an important point as far as delineation, um, Bitcoin, I don't think, will ever become a payment layer. I think it will be always... I think it has so much more price discovery in it left before that ever happens, if it ever does happen. And then you like if you actually look at volumes in crypto, Bitcoin or Ethereum are not the most traded. The most traded assets in the world in crypto are actually stable assets like like Tether and USDC. 
which are actually just US dollars, um, US dollars traded on blockchains. Now, the reason for that is because they can allow remittance, like paying people back like in another country or paying wages or receiving, you know, money for services done. And so you're, you're ba by circumventing the banks, it's faster, cheaper, um, you know, you name it. So um, Bitcoin, in my opinion, is not necessarily a direct one-for-one -one threat um, to US dollars or Australian dollars, but stable coins absolutely are, like, because they're, they're, they're better. They're the exact same thing, but they're better. So why would, if you're a large business or an international business, I actually just did a seed round actually for my own company and I received money from all over the world and 90% of the money I received was in stable coins. So, um, you know, why would you not use something that's superior and it's cheaper? So, uh, yeah, I think that, I think that um, the, the hybrid nature of those worlds is certainly already underway. And um, to me, there's only one clear winner because one's simply better than the other one. So you've obviously invested a lot of time, energy and effort, Dion, in uh, this area. And you just mentioned that you're starting up a business. Yeah, and actually, I'm not sure if it's much of an exclusive, but you guys actually have the exclusive on what I'm up to because um, I've sort of been in camera. But yeah, I, I have just started my own business called loader.com.au at the moment, which is um, effectively the crypto bank of australia so we will be able to um we'll be able to accept crypto as collateral and allow you to receive to, to lend you money which you then can go and do whatever you'd like with so obviously if you're holding um crypto at the moment you would need to sell it um that might create a capital gains event again i'm not a tax advisor so i don't know um but and then and then you would have to then use that money to then go and buy um, you know, real world assets or, or whatever else. So that's stage one. Stage two, we're actually is more ambitious and, and that's trying to solve uncollateralized lending. So that's lending people money um, without them putting up collateral. And a lot of people think that's impossible in crypto because of the anonymous nature of it. But um, we don't think it is. And there's a few other people around the world who don't think, think so either. So I'll have to I'll have to leave you hanging on that a little bit for now, um, but yeah, we uh, we look we're looking forward to having uh, we're looking forward to having a product to the market pretty soon. Great, well, congratulations. Yeah, I'm look. Yeah, that that's really exciting. Can't wait to um, see that and learn more about that. I did have a quick question, Dion. That's probably a little bit more high level. Um, I'm a big believer in yep. in blockchain technology purely for its distributed nature. Um, but it does have, at the same time, it's supposed to be kind of fair. It is, you know, there's all these kind of data um, mining pools and things like this that essentially, um, these, that's incredibly, they get a lot of reverb, it's incredibly <laughs> distracting. Um, that, you just love listening to your own voice. Yeah, 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 yeah just yeah, after right, I've said it, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, so there's these different organisations that'll come together and, and pool their resources to be able to mine um, mine transactions um, to get priority over over you know Joe Blow down the road. So giving them priority, meaning that they end up with most of the reward um, as the as the um, coins are minted. So um, and then same even with um, proof of stake model as well, where it's really 
any any um, organisation with a, a more reputable, you know, they've, they've essentially got more cash in the bank to be able to um, have their vote or their say. Does does that provide a level playing field in your mind, or I mean, oh, yeah. Well, I, I mean, blockchains are pretty amazing. They can do a lot of things, but they haven't been able to solve capitalism just yet, you know? So the, <laughs> that's, still, that's, still the, that's still the world <laughs> that's still the world we live in. Um, that's still the market we live in. And um, unfortunately, uh, those, who, those who have the most generally uh, have the ability to make the most as well. Um, and even more so in a market like crypto, because because it's decentralized and we can't, you know, the the network has to work out who we can trust. The way that game theory works is that those who have the most to lose are the most trustworthy because they are the ones who have the most to lose, right? Because they have mm. the least to, they have the most to lose from the network failing. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, there's... I, I guess it was an interesting point around, I know we've got to keep moving, um, but around the innovation, you know, I think that kind of distributed nature of it does, and like, it's this kind of awkward part where the capitalism does actually have an opportunity from the more democratic um, approach to, to distributed data, which is, um, yeah, I think that's a good segue to, to chat with Mike and well, get into that. It's a subject we're going to come back to again and again, I think, on, yeah, uh, yeah. on the DV show. It's absolutely fascinating. Dion, thank you very much indeed for your contribution and good luck with the, the new business. Um, we'll all be going online after this show to look up loader.com.au and um, I'm following your progress. Excellent. Thanks so much for taking the time with me today, guys. It's a great show. Ciao. Not at all. Take care. Thanks, mate. Right. So moving right along. We're going to have to do a little bit of a shuffle with the chairs here. Do you want to? Can we get rid of these things? We can now get rid of our oh, ear, ear pieces, which is a relief to everybody. Not least Mike, who's been sitting there listening to yeah, us talking yeah, and not knowing what the hell we're talking about for the last 40 minutes. Um, so one in four of us has experienced identity theft, resulting in uh, financial or pure data, data loss, or not to mention the emotional stress. Our passwords are the single biggest vulnerability in our online data world and our identity. There's a Sydney-based company seeking to solve this problem with some really groundbreaking tech. So I'd like to welcome Truth CEO and founder, Mike Simpson. Thanks, Paul. Great yes. to have you here, Glad Mike. To be here. Uh, Mike, welcome. And first of all, let's understand the scale of the problem. You say that one in four of us have had our identity stolen online. Is this just the vulnerability of passwords, uh, or are there just bad actors out there who are always going to steal our you know, identities? Well, Paul, there are definitely bad actors out there that are always <laughs> going to steal our identities. There's no doubt about that. But passwords are one of the key sources of weakness in society at the moment when it comes to cybercrime. Right. Yeah. So you mentioned there that um, it applies to consumers as well as the commercial sector. I know we're going to talk about some specific examples in a minute. Um, so how do you see this playing out for the commercial sector? Because um, I think you mentioned that 60% of small, medium-sized businesses that get hacked within a year or so are either out of business or in dire straits. Yeah, um, they're, they're out of business. Um, so wow. if they've been hacked, it's very tough to recover. Um, not surprising, uh, because you think about the cost that it imposes on a business, the cost mm. of compliance, the cost of reputation damage. Mm. Yeah. 
Uh, so, uh, you know, I was just looking up earlier today some, some more stats about that. Yeah. Uh, and about 47% of businesses have been either hacked or hit with some form of cyber attack uh, over the last 12 months. Now, That's a of lot. course, it depends on, yeah. on what survey you look at. Yeah. You know, the, the numbers do vary quite a bit. But, uh, you know, it's quite profound uh, and it's growing every year. Uh, and so for those that are hacked, um, obviously there's a, a massive cost to bear. For those that aren't hacked, there's also a cost to bear because the cost of compliance is growing every year in order to mitigate the risk of those attacks. Yes. Um, but when you think about the small and medium businesses, they're less prepared. So I, there's a, another stat which uh, I read this morning which said that 15% of SMBs are ready and cyber resilient. Right, only 15%. And doesn't surprise me, actually. The other 85 are in trouble. Um, so so there have been some very high-profile hacks recently in the press. We heard about nine who suddenly yeah. went, who yeah. were, were hacked after, after they'd done a program on China, or, or Russia, sorry. I wonder if there was any connection there. Um, and Toll, of course, last year was yeah. another high-profile one. What yeah. can you tell us about I mean, that? You wake up every morning and there's literally another press report about a, a high-profile company that has been hacked or, or mm. the, the big trend at the moment is ransomware. Um, and that's a real challenge for them because it locks up all of their systems. They're, they're simply unable to operate as a normal business while they, they have the ransomware hanging over them. Now, that was certainly yeah. the case for Toll. Mm. And what, what kind of... like? Information, are they looking for information or are they looking to just store business you know, as a competitive advantage or um, are they looking for the data or what's the actual, what's the, a lot of the motivation behind these attacks? Well, it varies. In the case of ransomware, it's um, pure monetary reward. Um, yeah, so they're yeah, holding the, the business to ransom yeah, yeah. And, and generally they want to get paid in Bitcoin. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and as soon as they get paid, of course, then the ransomware goes away. But the, the business has no guarantee at that point yeah. that they won't come back again. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's a real catch-22 for them. And, and so as a result, we only hear about the tip of the iceberg. The, the vast mm. majority of businesses that are hit with yeah. ransomware will never announce it to, to the market yeah. unless they have to. Which is what happened with Ubiquity <laughs> to their, their yes. case study. So they got hacked in December. And they only began to start telling their customers about it in January? Yeah, early January, I mm. think, and really downplayed the uh, the scale of the attack and the level to which it had affected their customers because obviously that is a huge reputational risk um, mm. because they're in the IoT business and they sell devices that are in people's homes and suddenly um, I think all of their customers would be feeling vulnerable and it wasn't just in homes as well they sold into um, corporate organizations as well and that was from somebody getting a password yeah last pass, I last, last pass. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't think we're Anybody's saying that LastPass has somehow become technically vulnerable. It might have been guessed or maybe socially engineered out of somebody. But however, um, yeah, one password has led to basically a, a very large global organization's customers being put at risk. Mm. Which is it's incredible amazing. when you yeah. think about it. it can come like can just come down to that one master password. <laughs> yes. Was there was that other? What was it? it was a few weeks ago that. Um, of the password that an, an intern, um, what was that? Oh, that yes. guy that they put in, the, like kind of password one two three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, it, you know, it's surprising. The um, I, I'm no different from the average person out there in terms of the way I use passwords. Right. Um, yeah. 
uh, about 50% of us use the same passwords across yeah. all of our accounts, which of course is a big no-no. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and we don't change them when we, you know, as frequently as we should. Uh, you know, they're basically they're just a honeypot, uh, and yeah. there's no way. While we have a system and a society that's founded on on passwords, it's always going to be the weak link in the chain. Yeah. Yes. Um, so we have to move beyond it. Um, yes. Fortunately, there there are moves in you know at at hand uh, where we are moving beyond it. Uh, there's a global organization called FIDO2 uh, that are replacing passwords with uh, user biometrics. Uh, and so all the big heavyweights, uh, Google, Apple, uh, Microsoft, they've all signed up to it. Um, and so that, that's great news. Um, through time, over the next year or two, you'll see more and more of your devices enabling you to use your biometrics and replace passwords completely. So, so we, we see it obviously on mobile devices already where you mm -hmm. can use your face recognition to open your phone and get access to, to apps, etc. Mm. What is it that your business is doing to try and solve this problem, Mike? Yeah, so um, our point of difference is that um, we don't believe that Apple and, and Google and Microsoft should own your biometrics. Um, we're a little bit similar to, to Dion. Yeah. We're big believers in democratization of data, um, allowing you to own your biometrics, allowing you to choose when you want to use them to authenticate yourself. Uh, and replace passwords. Uh, and so as a result, what we've built is a what we call the truth platform. Um, mm -hmm. And the truth platform basically uh, enables you, empowers you uh, to use your face, your voice, your fingerprint uh, to authenticate yourself and replace passwords for all of your online interactions. So you're bringing all of those things together in one app, the voice, the face, that's right. And so basically a user can decide uh, which one they're more comfortable with or if it's a, a very secure, very high risk interaction, they can use all three um, to make sure that there's the, the top level of security. Okay. And, and how are you approaching it? Are you you're creating this platform for individual users or is it for companies? How is it going to get to market? Well, it will be both eventually. Uh, at the moment, we're very focused on, on the enterprise stream. Uh, mm -hmm. So delivering um, what's called identity and access management services to enterprises to enable them to take their customers and their employees along a passwordless journey. Uh, and so what we've built out over the last couple of years are all of the, if you like, the foundation building blocks of that solution for enterprises. But uh, now that we've built that foundation, we can go direct to consumers as well and give them access to an app where they have the ability to use their biometrics. And how is this going to help that democratization piece exactly? Well, you can imagine an environment, you know, let, let's cast our minds forward uh, a couple of years. Um, uh, before, actually, before I do that, I'll just give you one little, one little statistic. At the moment, Google makes around about $500 million a day out of our data. Wow. And so um, it's a really weird model, right? And Facebook are right behind them, by the way. Uh, and if you boil all of that down and you say, okay, well, how much are they making out of your data per day or per month? It's not a huge amount because it's spread across you know, hundreds of millions of world. users. Um, yeah. But it still amounts to, you know, depending on, on you know, the way that you, the assumptions you make, the analysis you do, somewhere between $10 and $20 a month for the average user. Um, so you know, not immaterial. And depending if you're a very intensive user, it's going to be a lot more than that. And if you're willing to share more data, for example, like your biometric data, 
uh, not your necessarily your face or your voice, but you know your your genome, you know all of that underlying information that can be very valuable for medical research. Yep. Then that number gets manifold, you know, 10, right. 20, 100 times higher. Right. So so the, the the data is inherently valuable, and we know that because the biggest companies on on earth uh, have yeah. made a business out of that data. But ultimately, it is our data, and mm. and what we believe in is the ability to reclaim that data link it to a digital identity that, that we control, that we manage, and then if we decide to, to also then monetize it on our terms. Sure. And, and if you are monetizing, the key there is to have that transparency of who's using my data at any point in time. Yeah. How do you um, approach the, that issue around people actually owning their biometric data since you're providing the service and the facility for actually doing the measurement and doing the, the verification so is, is that data going to sit on my app or on your sort of platform or yeah. where would it be? So we believe in, in giving users the choice. Um, if they want to have it encrypted on their device, um, that, good luck to them, that's mm. great. Uh, if they want to be device agnostic, uh, therefore, you know, I can authenticate myself, you know, on this laptop or your mobile phone or my mobile phone, then it needs to be a cloud-based solution. And in that case, there needs to be multiple layers of defense to protect from mm. what's mm -hmm. called a man-in-the-middle attack, you know, where yeah. someone can capture you know, that biometric data. Um, yeah. And so what we do is we, we have four layers of defense. We, we do what's called salting of the, uh, the underlying biometric binary. That means injecting false information into it. Uh, then we fragment it into many different parts. We encrypt each fragment, and then we shard those fragments onto different trusted servers. One of those trusted servers could be your actual device, your mobile device, but okay. you can also, it's very, uh, similar to the blockchain uh, yeah. mantra of you know federated identity and, and yeah. having multiple trusted parties. So is that something you could actually you know you could actually use the blockchain for? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's perfect, perfect yeah. application yeah. of blockchain. Yeah. In fact, I would argue that that NFTs, perhaps the single biggest use case for an NFT, is around your own personal yeah, data. You couldn't get any more. Non-fungible than that, right? Yeah, What is what does non-fungible mean for our audience? Well, it's like you can't. Um, it's unique, essentially. Like okay. it's um, or untradable. Yeah, untradable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I couldn't buy a chocolate. So bar you can't. You can't. You can. <laughs> you can. You can change a bitcoin for a bitcoin, but mm. you can't. So change it's an non NFT for another non-fungible token. Yeah, indeed. Um, yeah, so, cool. um, so how long before we're going to be passwordless, Mike? Well, if you, uh, if you want to go with the FIDO2 solution with Google and Apple, um, you can do that almost immediately, uh, depending on who your enterprise partner is. So it's going to take some time for, your, for the, each of the enterprises, whether it be um, your employer or one of your social platforms, to embrace that. Um, but I would imagine over the next year or two, the majority of the online platforms will, will accept that as their, their primary means of authentication. Um, in terms of our service where we're allowing for the, the cloud-based um, biometrics, um, we plan to have our, our service live in the next three to four months. Yeah. Uh, mm. and, uh, and we're rolling out as a pilot in beta mode. Uh, and then maybe three months after that, I would imagine um, yeah. we'll have it go live. So, so can people express interest in the product now? Are you you bet they can. Yeah. <laughs> are, are you guys signed up? <laughs> well, we've I'm going to play with it. It's really cool. I've been part of the testing. It's been really fun. Oh, it's really yeah, cool, yeah, actually. Yeah. You know, testing the 
generating a 3D map of your of a person's face to get different to map it against um, you know a piece of ID. It might be like a driver's license or something like that. Yeah, that's really. It. That's right. Yeah. What's key there is two things. Um, linking it back to what's called the identity proofing step, right? So supplying mm. your, your passport, your, your driver's license, whatever it might be, and, and we then proof that you are who you say you are. Yeah. Sure. And, and the second piece is knowing that you are live and present in the moment. So that's called mm. user liveness. So every time you're, you're authenticating yourself with your face or your voice, Behind the scenes, we're doing a test that you are live and present, and it's not someone, someone pretending to be holding up a picture right of someone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you think you can ever get away from people backing up their identity with that document? Well, I think what we can get away from is the need to do that on a regular basis. Sure. Um, the idea of a digital identity is you can do that. You know, every time you renew your license, for example, or renew your passport. You, you authenticate that online and mm. then that, that is your identity proofing for the next period of time until you have to do it again in two, three, five years, whatever, whatever the rules state. Sure, yeah, because there are, sorry guys, I was just going to say, there are different approaches to digital identity like government sponsored ones, I think there's a, there's a UN standard as well, but mostly those are document based approaches, mm. aren't they, and they're, they're not a biometric uh, system. That, that's right. and and. I mean, it's understandable that the government is a little bit slow to, to adopt um, biometrics because you know they're, they're naturally concerned about about some of the security risks associated with it. Mm. Um, and so we're, we we're very much at the cutting edge in terms of implementing those um, those protections in terms of user liveness, in terms of the the identity proofing pieces. But when you have those um, those additional features, it, it actually becomes a much safer. Uh, and less fraud-prone method mm. than what we have at the moment in sure. terms of verifying our identity. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, one last comment I will say. Oh, you, sorry, you asked the question, um, can people sign up? Yes, I did. Uh, yeah, so uh, go to info at truth.id. Truth is with two U's. Yes. Uh, the reason for the two U's is that we are going to have an NFT, and it's going to be called a universal unit, uh, a UU, uh -huh. and therefore okay. truth has two U's. Nice. Okay, so you heard it here first. Again, another world first. That's two in one program. It doesn't get any better than that, does it? No. Mike, thank you very much for coming yes. along. Really appreciate it, and good luck with uh, Truth. We're going to be following what you're doing, and we're also going to be signing up to be um, early adopters. Yeah, yeah, got to check that out. Excellent. Yeah, Thanks, great. guys. Thanks, Mike. Thank you very much, Mike. Good. So, look, uh, we're drawing to a close. Just wanted to, to follow up on a couple of things from last week, uh, or the last show. Um, you may remember we did this, uh, this survey looking at migration of people oh, yeah. out of the city centres or out of the main conurbations as a result of the, the COVID lockdown. And we put a little survey up on LinkedIn and got a huge response to it. It got nearly 2,000 responses. Um, but the interesting thing is that the, the proportion of people who are likely to move out as a result of and want to move out as, as a result of the last 12 months hasn't changed. So it's around about 62% of our sample say that they expect to be moving out of the cities and to work remotely and for that to be their, their norm. Mm. And then, Luke, we saw some research from Microsoft just today, which was kind of backing that up, actually saying it's oh, yeah, higher. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so yeah, Microsoft found, they, they, they had a bigger number for that, didn't they? They did, about 3,000. Something like that, yeah, yeah. But, but a higher percentage as well. Oh, 72%. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so, yeah. so even more people, um, which is quite interesting. So there's like a big signal coming from the people who are mm. doing the work. Like, I think it's been like to 
continue like having the option to work from home, not necessarily all the time. Because no. I think the number for people who want to be full time remote is is a bit smaller than that. But yeah, like that sixty to seventy percent of people would like to have the option of doing it like, reasonably regularly. Yeah. Um, but also, there was another report from KPMG published mm. um, not so long ago, a week or two ago, I think. Um, saying that uh, CEOs are scaling back plans to cut down on office space mm. because there was this big move to remote work and everybody mm. was thinking, well, gee, we've got these offices, we've got to keep the power yeah, on yeah. and can do the maintenance and the upkeep of all this space and nobody's using it. Um, so last year, about 70% of CEOs, um, large organisations, were thinking, boy, we better get rid of some office space. And now it's only something like 17%. Wow. So it's, so really, it's really dropped back. It's really wound back, yeah. yeah. And so again, this is, I think there's a big expectation that regardless of that 60 to 70% of people wanting to work from home more often, um, sure. they'll and be asked of, to come the into the office. One of the factors that's driving this is something that was picked up in that Microsoft report again, which was uh, one of the, the biggest fears mm. that organizations had as a result of people working to re work remotely was that um, it would slow down innovation. And it has. So according to, to this Microsoft study, the, one of the seven things they said were being negatively impacted by people working from home was the pace of innovation had dramatically slowed in the last six months. And the number of new projects that were starting up, the number of new ideas that companies were working on was reducing, which might kind of um, you know, point to that fact that you've just mentioned, yeah. uh, that they're thinking, well, perhaps we do need to keep some office space so that people can come together and we've got an opportunity to, to keep the collaboration and innovation yes. going at the same pace that it was going during the, the height of the COVID crisis. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's something that's, you know, it's obvious that everyone kind of wants. No one wants to come into the office every single day, or a majority of people don't want to, judging by the stats. Yeah. But they still need, like, that connection with their co-workers, and it's obviously you're never going to get that creative environment, you know, sitting in your dungeon at home. Mm. Um, but getting people together on a, on a whiteboard or whatever, is, yeah. you, know, you can't First that really can. around. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Good. So yeah, it's a, I reckon it's a pretty exciting future. For yeah, like, I mean, I'm, absolutely. I'm, I'm happy with that way of working anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've always done it that way. That's the thing. So it's not new to you. Anyway, we, we must wrap up. Thank you very much indeed, Mike. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, Again. Jason. Thank you Thanks, for, for listening. Um, uh, all of the topics that we've covered on the show today will, of course, be followed up online by Digital Village. And if you guys have got any queries or questions, please, please get in contact with us and let us know. We also want to hear from you on topics that you would like us to cover in the next show. So don't be shy. We'd like to hear from you. Um, you can go onto our website and connect to us uh, that way. The next show is going to be in three weeks' time on the 28th of April. Um, and we actually don't have any topics of that yet, guys, so we're going to have to do some Well, work to I think, think one of the topics we were looking at is the digital economy, yes. which um, we nearly got onto today. Talk, I was keen to chat Mike about his thoughts around um, non-personal data and yeah. how, you know, but maybe for uh, another, maybe another for time. Next, time, okay. next yeah. month, maybe. Sounds yeah, interesting. Good. Okay, so it's goodbye from Luke. Ciao. Goodbye from Jason. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs> See you next goodbye month. Goodbye from Mike. Bye. And goodbye from me. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks right, very much, guys. Time.